Hello, and welcome to another episode of Conversations Between a Priest and a Rabbi. Today, Father Craig Swan and Rabbi Ethan Adler are going to be talking about how God is represented in each of their religious faiths. This conversation is recorded via Zoom, so please take that into consideration while you're listening. Thanks for tuning in, and if you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast. Hello and welcome to another session or conversation between a rabbi and a priest. I'm the Reverend Craig Swan. I'm the priest at St. Peter's by the Sea in Narragansett, Rhode Island. And as always, I am joined by... I am Rabbi Ethan Adler, a rabbi at Congregation Beth David in Narragansett, and a congregation as well in Westerly. Our topic for this podcast is the image of God and what that means between our two faiths. And um, I thought I would start off because I know for a fact that historically, the image of God for most people has been that of basically a white male. It has been, which is coming off of our Greek and Roman uh, history, and also in the Christian church, shall we say, perpetuated by uh, Michelangelo and the great painters of the medieval times in which God was presented as, um, from today's standards, a rather buff older gentleman with a long beard. And um, that continues to be our image. And so today, as we talk about the image of God, hopefully through this, we'll begin to broaden our understanding of what God may or may not look like. So I'm, I'm reminded, and I'm, I'm sure I've shared the story before, of a Sunday school class where there's maybe 10 minutes left, and the teacher says to the students, take out a piece of paper, some crayons, and draw whatever, whatever comes to mind. So they all get busy, and the teacher walks around, and somebody's uh, drawing a, a sailboat, somebody's drawing a dog, somebody's drawing clouds, whatever. She comes to Sally's desk and she's got lines and squiggles and colors and all kinds of stuff going on. And she says, Sally, what are you drawing? And she says, I'm drawing a picture of God. The teacher looks at her and says, you know, honey, no one knows what God looks like. And she looks up at the teacher and says, they will when I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, in our tradition, we've, you know, as growing up, we've, we've also shared the same ideas, a very paternalistic um, image, if you will, of God, again, as, as, um, as a father, um, sometimes as a king. We, we uh, often refer to God as, as our father, our king, in a sense that we look for the attributes of a father who is protective and loving and kind, but we also and also a disciplinarian, but we also look at God as a king, someone who has power and protects us and so on. And so even, even I growing up always had this image of God sort of sitting in a cloud, uh, maybe playing the harp, maybe not, um, long beard, white robe, and um, just just kind of sitting there waiting, waiting to listen to our, our every, every prayer and so on and so forth. As, as I got older, of course, I, I had a difference in, in image. And, and now we are, it, so the classic Jewish understanding 
is that but God does not have a body. We have um, one of our sages, Maimonides, who lived about a thousand years ago. He he uh, sort of formulated the 13 principles of faith that are incumbent on Jewish people. And one of them is that God is non-corporeal, that God does not have, not have a body. Although anthropomorphically, we do assign God certain physical characteristics to help us understand. So when we say God hears our voice, we don't imagine this huge ear someplace out in the stratosphere listening to us. Or around Passover, when we say God brought us out of Egypt with an outstretched hand, we don't, we don't typically mean there was an actual hand that brought us out, but just as a way to, to help us understand because we, we, we need that picture. I mean, look, you know, Yogi Bear never talked, but, you know, we gave him voice so he can tell us he's smarter than the average bear. Um, you know, any, any of uh, Aesop's fables that have animals in him talking to each other and doing whatever, it, it just, just as a way of a lesson. And so we understand God as something which is not only ineffable, which means we, we, we don't even know how to pronounce his name correctly, but something that cannot be, cannot be defined. And perhaps that explains one of the Ten Commandments, where we are told, you shall not make yourself a graven image. So we can be created in God's image, but we cannot create an image of God. Because we understand, once we create a picture, all of a sudden, we're going to be defining what God is based, based on that picture. And I'll end with, with just this. I remember one time I was in, uh, I guess, sixth grade or fifth grade, and we had an art teacher. And the first day she shows up and she says, I want you to draw a scene. What, you know, we're like, what kind of scene? Whatever you want, you can do it. Ocean, you can do a, a, a desert scene, a city, whatever you want. And we said, well, can you start us off? Can you just draw something? And then we can, she says, no, because once I, once I give you a start, you're going to be you're going to be locked to that image. So you got to be creative. You got to be full. So that is, on a very high level, how how we understand both the image of God, what we imagine God looks like, or what imagine God is, but also the understanding that we also were created in God's image. Not that we look like God, but um, we have God's attributes. Picked up on a really good point as to why spiritually we are so confined or so desire um, the anthropomorphic version of God. And that's it gives us something to relate to. It's hard for us to relate to um, an energy cloud or something that is um, undefinable because we as human beings seek and relate to something that is definite. And so I think it becomes very easy for us to move, especially as children in concrete times, towards a very concrete image. In the Christian tradition, we talk about God in terms of the Trinity. And I think this gets even more confusing for people because we, you hear us often invoke the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the assumption is that we're, uh, plural theistic or multi-theistic in terms of um, 
it sounds like we have three different gods. And then of course the explanation of the Trinity is that it is one God, um, three, um, not three images, but three aspects of the same God. And then it gets even more confusing when we begin to talk about Jesus of Nazareth, who was fully human and fully divine and a part of the Godhead. And then we add to that the fact that you just said, the other point is that we are made in God's image. So we have the assumption that God somehow looks like us. And I love a friend um, recently, we were talking about as I was working with our teenagers about how do we describe this beyond just the energy of love being God. And she said, when we talk about the Trinity, she says, I often explain it this way, that it's like a couple dancing, that you've got father and son dancing, it's kind of interesting, and the Holy Spirit becomes the music. And this weekend I'm gonna be doing a wedding and I'm gonna talk about marriage. We talk about um, the couple come in as two and leave as one. Does that mean that they actually merge together as a one body, but they're in relationship with each other. And I talk to my couples about becoming of one mind. And as I look at the Godhead and think about it from the Christian standpoint of the Trinity, what I, see or understand of that is they do have, each aspect has its individual reality to itself, but how they are one is that they're in collegium and in total unity with each other. They're one heart, one mind. And when Jesus walked the earth from our perspective, what made Jesus fully divine wasn't that he looked like God per se in human form, it's that his whole spirit and will was in perfect unity with God and never split off. And when we as Christians talk about being made in the image of God, it really comes down to a couple of things. One, we also are given the ability to be in unity with God um, spiritually and mentally. Um, but also we talk about God as being a relational being. And our image is about relationship. I love in gen, one of the Genesis stories, God says, let us make mankind in our image, male and female. So you get that sense that man, male and female on their own does not complete the image of God. The relationship completes the image. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Um, and we've, we've often pondered what does it mean when it says that God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness? And the question is, who is he talking to? I guess he's talking to angels. And he's talking to the angels and says, hey, I'm going to, we're going to make, make a man or a human being in our image after our likeness is going to look like us. And we can imagine the angel saying, well, what about us, you know, what about, where do we stand? And that's, look, they're going to be a little below you, but they're going to, they're going to rule the, the oceans and the fields and the whole earth and so on. But we understand that when it says likeness, we don't necessarily, or the, the, the Bible didn't necessarily mean a physical likeness, but more of a, of a, an attribute likeness. So, we, we can look at the, at the Bible, for example, and see, well, 
what is God doing that we can emulate and therefore sort of live in his image? Um, the Hebrew word for, for the image of God also carries a sense of mirroring and partnering. So we are mirroring what God does and thereby become a partner. Okay, just a couple of examples. Um, <clears throat> you know, when uh, in the story of Eden, when, when um, Adam and Eve were caught eating from whatever, whatever fruit they ate and they realized they were naked, it says, and God made for Abraham and his wife cloaks of leather and he clothed them. What does that mean? That means that we also should clothe the naked, i.e. take care of people, be community-minded, support shelters, those, those kind of things. Um, in another part, when um, later on in Genesis, um, Abraham has himself and everybody, all males over 13, circumcised. And um, I'm sure when God first told him about the circumcision, I'm sure the first words out of Abraham's mouth was like, say what? But we're not, we're not really sure. But um, God visited him through an angel. And so from that, we learned the notion of how important it is to visit, to visit the sick. Um, towards the end of Moses's life, when he's up on a mountain and God says, you will be gathered unto your people. He says, and God buried Moses in the valley. From that, we learn the importance of the whole mourning and, and burying the dead and respecting the dead and mourners and just that, that whole thing. So bottom line is when it says we were created in the image of God, what, what we really mean is that we were created with the intellect and, and spirituality to be able to understand that we, we need to answer to a higher authority and we need to behave in a certain way that will make us God-like, and therefore in his image. On some level, you work within the concept of sanctification, which is from a Christian perspective, as we journey with Christ, part of our journey is to become more and more Christ-like or God-like in how we lead and live our lives and as we let go of the ways of the world. Uh, that allows us to become or to live in a way that's much more in the image of God and of God's love. Absolutely, absolutely. We also believe that, um, well, somebody may say, well, if God created you in his image, why aren't you like him? Why isn't everybody nice and kind and godlike? You know, um, why doesn't everybody portray the same attributes as God or Jesus or Allah, whoever. Why, why is that? I mean, if God could create the entire universe, I mean, why couldn't he create mankind that would just naturally be good and kind and, and be in the image of God? Well, in our tradition, we also believe in something called free will. That God not only gave us, created us in his image, but part of that image is free will, which is also, if you think about it, part of God. God has free will. God can choose to do what God wants, I imagine. So if um, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai 
and he sees people worshiping a golden calf and uh, engaging in all kinds of activities, which I'm sure Moses was not happy about. And God got very upset, and he, he was ready to wipe them out and say, hey, this is another, you know, I, I, I took people out of Egypt to make them my people, to give them my laws and to, to create to create a holy, a holy nation. It, it's, it's not working out. And Moses pleaded and said, look, you don't want the nations of the world to say, hey, look at this God. He took, took people out of slavery just to, just to destroy them in the wilderness. Well, God had free will. God could have said, yes, okay, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll listen to you, Moses. Or no, 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 I'm going to do what I want to do. So we believe that along with this image of all the attributes, we also received free will. Free will to to behave as as we as we believe we should we should, and along with that free will, and I can get into some detail about it or not, is this notion that we are created with two inclinations. We have an inclination to do good things, and we have an inclination to do bad things, and we all have this. None of us has been spared of the inclination to do evil things or to do good things. We have them both. The question is, to what extent does the inclination to do good overpower our inclination to do bad? The inclination to do bad isn't such a terrible thing because um, it, it also drives us to create civilization, to build homes, to write books, to search out of space. Um, if we were talking psychology, it might be related to the Freudian id, to do things that we want to do to satisfy our needs. But the inclination to do good is like the ego, the superego that says, wait, you know, there's, there's ways to do things and ways not to do things. So um, that is also part of what we believe is the image that we're created in the image of God. Gives us, we, we also, we're not robots. God has given us this, this free will to be able to to choose now, of course, choices have consequences, and we understand part of the image is that God also gave us intelligence to be able to discern what is a good path, which will yield hopefully good results, and what is a bad path that will yield other kinds of results. I was thinking, I was thinking about. Genesis and um, God created us in God's image for God's pleasure. But he told us not to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because by doing so, while we had the free will to choose whether to partake in it, to disobey or not, there was a sense of wonderful innocence. God imbued us with free will, but I think it's, I think God may have left out the ability to know and discern good and evil so that we only knew good when he created us. But by disobedience, we discovered that there's another side to the coin. And um, from that point on, we, we've had to discern or figure out um, what is good and what is evil. And I love um, 
the statement, even when I think I'm doing good, um, at the base, I may actually unknowingly be doing evil. And um, so I'm, from my perspective, I'm not quite convinced that we really have the full ability to discern. We, I think we struggle with that as humanity because it's above our pay grade, shall we say. Um, God does it. But as we move in this, I was thinking if we're talking about this non-specific, non-definable entity um, that in AA is defined as the greater power, what do we pray to? And what, what is the image that comes into our minds um, that allows us to pray? And I think about this in terms of conversations I'm having with a couple of the women in my parish who rightly so have become frustrated because the Judeo-Christian tradition's imagery of God is so male dominant. And they wanna know where is that softer feminine entity uh, in medieval tradition one scholar argues that the reason that Mary has become so prominent in medieval Catholicism is that she offered the feminine side to the deity, um, a woman to relate to. And we hear in uh, Roman Catholic tradition, especially people often pray to female saints, especially to Mary or um, other saints. But I think it becomes a good question. What, what do we pray to? Because people say, I feel more at home and more in God's presence when I'm in nature. But God doesn't look like a tree. It hasn't been created in the image of it. We haven't been created in the image of a tree. And I often um, talk to people about when I enter into prayer, I really don't look for anything specific. But I work with God more as a feeling. Mm -hmm that feeling that you get when you're in the woods where it's quiet and you're alone, you say, I feel as if I'm in God's presence. I can find that feeling um, when I center myself downstairs in my um, study at home. I, I find that in church. And I find that possibility when I'm within congregational worship, because again, um, God isn't present in one place, but omnipresent throughout this world. And it's, are we, when we pray and we're looking for God, are we looking for the right thing? Because we tend to look for something concrete as opposed to something that's more of a presence or a sense. Yeah, you know how sometimes people will put a message in a bottle? Mm -hmm. They'll be on an island somewhere and they'll, they'll and they send it off. Now, they don't know where it's going to go, but they know they did something which they should and something that might be helpful. They're not sure, but at least they're, they have faith that somehow this may turn out to be okay. Well, in the same sense, again, from a Jewish perspective, um, we don't know who's listening or not, but we feel that, that um, we're, we're doing what we should be doing, that, that when we pray, we express whatever our thoughts are and, and feelings, and that it 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 enters the ocean and then it's going to end up somewhere we have this 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 um also this concept in judaism called the shekhinah which is god's god's presence we believe that god is present god makes himself or herself present um as you said when you study 
when you're in the woods, when you're in, in prayer, when you're in temple, wherever you are, you can, you can feel, feel God's presence. And then when you pray, you literally feel that, that God's, I, get, I can't think of another word right now, God's presence is there. And that God can even hear the small, still small voice, right? The, God can hear the whisper. We, you know, we have an expression when somebody says, uh, you know, may, uh, may we have world peace, may something like that. And the expression is from your mouth to God's ears. So we have this notion that God could be as close to us as our lips, that even the slightest whisper, God will be able to hear, not necessarily answer, but at least hear and listen to us. So we have this sense of closeness. Now, the thing is, who do we pray to when I'm sitting in temple and I'm praying? I mean, I'm in a, in a building with walls and studs and all that. Is anybody listening? You know, is anybody hearing? You know, it's the old, the tree falls in the forest, you know, nobody hears it. Is it making a sound? The answer is yes, of course. But we walk into a room and turn on the lights. We may not understand all the electricity that's involved, but we just, we just know, we just do it automatically. We go on the internet, you know, we go, we'll look up something on Google and half a second later we have there. You, you go on your GPS and you, you want to know how to get to a certain address in California within, within less than a second, it's all there. We don't really bother to think about, well, how did it all work? We just know we do something and we get a result. And sometimes, or many times when I pray, I just feel good about praying. I'm not thinking about, is this going to work? Is this really, somebody's sick and I offer a prayer, I just feel good about it. They say I'm offering a prayer to, the, to God, to the universe, to whoever, and doing, I'm, I'm doing the godly thing. I'm doing what, what God would expect me to do. And um, I just don't take it to the next level and says, well, is this, is this going to work? I, I, don't, I don't really think about it. Medicine, the same thing. You know, your doctor says, take, take this pill every day. You, you do it. You don't necessarily have to understand how it impacts with your neurotransmitters and certain parts of your brain. You just take it because you know it's the right thing to do. And um, that's, that's the way we look at it as well. You know, it's, it's like the old Nike commercial, just do it. Just do it, just be there. One of the wonderful exercises that uh, Ignatius gives us is to take time at the end of each day and ask the question, where did I experience God? And I think it works with the mindfulness um, piece that's come out. And as you begin to ponder where you have been touched by God throughout your day, you discover more and more how active God is in your life and how to recognize God, whether it be in exchange with somebody, uh, whether you have um, seen something good happen or just felt a presence or just felt odd by a sunrise or a sunset. Um, but when we begin to look for and identify those moments, 
the image of God becomes very real in its nonspecific way. I also like thinking about, again, you can correct me, the word ruach, breath and spirit. Mm -hmm. And it plays within the Native American understanding of what life is. Life begins with the first breath in and obviously ends with the life breath out. And again, it's combined between breath and spirit. And so when I think about the image or the presence of God today in my life, often when I sit down to think about God, what I do imagine is that God is the very air that I breathe. We say, I often say that God is a source of all life and love. And of course, life is 100% dependent on the air we breathe. There's, so there's an interesting, I'm just going to interrupt you for a second. Yeah. Um, you just sparked it before I forget because I'm old. There is uh, a great Hasidic story of a student who's been studying the, the, all, the, all the texts and he goes to his teacher, he says, I'm, I'm learning, I'm studying, but I just, I, I can't find God. I just, I just, I just can't find him. No matter what I do, and I pray every day, and I study every day, and I talk about it, I just, I just, I just can't find him. So the rabbi takes the student to a nearby uh, trough where horses drink their water, and he puts his head in it and forces him to be under the water for like a half a minute. Then he lets him out. And of course, the student is gasping for air. And his teacher says, when you want God, as much as you want air right now, you'll find him. So I just thought I'd spark that story for me. And that sense of that breathing in, I need that life force. Right. Uh, so, you know, as I, Think about that. What is the image of God? Well, the image of God is limitless. How are we made in God's image, as we've been talking, is about the attributes of uh, relationship, the attribute of free will, the attribute of hopefully the desire to do good and to act in the way that God has demonstrated in his care for humanity in terms of clothing us and caring for us and feeding us. Uh, and as we've talked today about um, what is it that we can grasp onto? Is God male? Is God female? God is both and, and um, none of the above. And I think that's the beauty of the image of God that it allows us not so much to make God in our image or create an image that works for us, but it allows us to imagine something far greater than ourselves and limitless, but also at the same time, an image of what brings to us a sense of hope and engages us in a sense of um, love itself. And that, um, we're running out of time, so I do want to take a moment to allow you any last words and to close us in prayer. Yeah, so the last word might be and this, this might be another topic down the road, is if in, if in fact we understand that God created Adam with God's image, let's say God's DNA, and that got transferred to Eve and their children, 
then we have to believe that the six and a half billion people living in the world today all have all have a piece of that image DNA in them. And the question that raises is if in fact we are all created in the image of God, how do we deal with people who are difficult or people we don't like? And maybe that's a topic for another for another time. Or how does God reside within us? Right, right, right. We'll explore that. So as we as we explore the mysteries of trying to understand what it means to be created in the image of God, let us remember that life is God's gift to us. And what we do with it is our gift to God. Amen. Amen. You have been listening to Conversations with a Priest and a Rabbi, and we hope you enjoyed what you've heard. If you enjoy it, please subscribe to our podcast and share it with a friend. Until next time, thank you very much and God bless.